I don't know how we have conversations without talking about race. And I think, I don't know that there's a day that has gone by where somebody hasn't reminded me that I'm black and that I'm a woman. I'm like, oh, is that me? I forgot. I forgot for one second. <laughs> this is Imai Nibanga. She works for AJ Plus, Al Jazeera's online news channel. She spent much of the last few months stirring up conversations that are, well, uncomfortable. I created this uh, documentary series called Divided America, where I traveled across the country from the East Coast to the West Coast in a matter of two weeks nonstop, going around and exploring the rise of far-right violence in the United States. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! This is America. Scenes like this have become more commonplace because groups like these are more prevalent. The United States is in the middle of a surge of far-right violence. The last few years alone have given us several high-profile examples, like the Pittsburgh synagogue attack, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville that saw a woman killed, and the Charleston Church massacre. I'm Imtiaz Tayeb, and this is The Take. Every week, we bring you a story from Al Jazeera journalism. The rise of the far right is not limited to the U.S. Just north of the border, in Canada, a man shot and killed six people at a mosque in Quebec City a little over two years ago. In 2011, a self-styled anti-Muslim crusader killed 77 people in a double attack in Norway. And then, of course, New Zealand. We were producing this week's episode when a gunman killed at least 50 worshippers at two mosques in Christchurch. The shooter left a manifesto which praised Donald Trump. You see today white nationalism as a rising threat around the world. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know. What about the U.S., home of the KKK? That's our focus this week. People who track these movements say there are more than a thousand hate groups active in the U.S. right now. Not all of them are far-right groups. Not all of them are violent. And that's what Iman found, that they're not necessarily alike. Not all far-right groups are made the same. They don't even all like each other. They don't even all have the same goals and ideas. So there are basically two branches. There are people who are anti-government, right? They don't like big government, and that's what they're against. Think like militias. Then there are people who are racist ideologues, and they don't like different religions, they don't like different genders, all these different things. So they're separate. They're these two classes of people that all fall into the far right category, but they don't all necessarily want the same things. They don't get along really at all. What's the U.S. government doing or not doing uh, when it comes to responding to groups like these groups, which, as we know, commit violence, sometimes extreme? We don't know what we don't know. There was a man who used to work for the Department of Homeland Security, Daryl Johnson, who, you know, originally warned about this in 2008 and 2009 and noticed, you know, basically when Barack Obama started running in 2008, that there was this rise and sort of sustained rise um, that was happening even after he took office. And he was trying to warn people about it. He spoke to Congress to say, hey, we really got to pay attention to this. An extremist militia in Michigan that were acquitted this year of plotting to kill police officers and planting bombs at their funerals had an arsenal of weapons at their disposal that was larger than all 230-plus Muslim plotters and attackers charged in the U.S. since 9-11. 
combined. And it ended up being such a huge controversy. Outrage tonight over an intelligence report. A new report from Homeland Security suggests the bad economy may drive people to right-wing extremist groups. Critics say the Department of Homeland Security document unfairly paints military vets as right-wing extremists. I would like them to be fired from the Department of Homeland Security. One of the things Daryl Johnson's report pointed out was that returning military vets may be targeted for recruitment by extremists. And a lot of people really took offense to that and felt like he was blaming vets. The result was that the Department of Homeland Security disbanded Daryl Johnson's domestic terror unit. But the hard truth is that several soldiers and former soldiers have been involved in attacks on the U.S. The most infamous was Timothy McVeigh. About a third of the building has been blown away. Timothy McVeigh, guilty. Guilty on all 11 federal charges that he faced in the Oklahoma City bombing trial. You met a survivor of the Oklahoma City bombing. Tell us about who you met. What was his name and what did he tell you? Dennis Purifoy is a man who probably quite literally should be dead. He was about 100 or 115 feet away from the bombing. His coworker, who sat next to him, died. He lost 16 members of um, his work, and he went to 16 different funerals. I think I was kind of in shock, like most people were. What, what would possess Timothy McVeigh, who was an Army veteran, why would he do such a thing? Before the bombing, I really didn't know the extent of far-right extremism in the country. Once I became aware of it, I tried to let other people know. I talked about it. I talked about it at church. Um, I didn't. I don't know that I was on a crusade, but I, I was definitely interested in more people learning about it and being aware about it. One of the things I asked him, which I think about all the time, because even in reporting this, there are people now who not only don't remember Oklahoma City, but don't even know that's the thing that happened. And it's going to be 25 years next April. Um, and I asked him if he worried about it fading from memory, and he said, you know. A little bit, but it is, it's still, even to this day, it's the largest domestic terrorism as far as number of casualties in the United States. I hope that we remain, for many years to come, the still the largest domestic terrorism incident in our history. You know, this perception of terrorism in the U.S. doesn't always include far-right groups. That was true before 9-11 and obviously is true afterwards. There was a part of the documentary that really jumped out at me, and it was a news anchor standing in front of the building minutes after the bombing. The attack came without warning, and according to a U.S. government source, told CBS News that it has Middle East terrorism written all over it. I thought it was so intriguing to see Connie Chung, who was then the CBS News anchor, standing out of a building that literally had the facade just sliced off of it, and say something with an incredible amount of certainty and made it sound so definitive. And in just a few hours or days, we would know that that is absolutely not true. And I think it speaks to something that 
the United States is still struggling with and dealing with now, even after 9-11, and, and also how news media covers things. Ruby Ridge to Waco to Oklahoma City is just a couple of years, and no one made that connection to the Olympic bombing, which is just a year later. Like, we had the MAGA bomber late last year. We had this year, just a few weeks ago, um, the man in Maryland, Christopher Hassan, whose people don't even know his name, right, who was looking to kill Democrats. Whenever there is someone who claims Islam, right, as their ideology and their motivation, we will tie 9-11 to this thing, to this thing, to this thing. Even if those people never knew each other, even if it's not the same version of Islam, right, we never make the connection. Like, that to me is where news media in particular, because that is our job, needs to do a better job of relaying information. It's not enough to just parrot data. We have to make the connections. It does seem like the government here in the U.S. and the investigative authorities have this sort of disproportionate emphasis placed on foreign terror or, or the perceived threat of foreign terror. Why do you think that is given all the data shows that the bigger threat is the far right and homegrown violence. It may be because, you know, it's difficult to understand things within your own home. Like, how much scarier is it that you are more likely to be harmed by an act of far-right violence here in the U.S. than some foreign person in some foreign place, you know? Foreign, in quotation marks, One thing that was incredibly intriguing to me was when I was talking to people who used to be in the neo-Nazi movement. They said it's by design that they're infiltrating things that we would never think of. Your, you know, police departments, your political organizations and elections, your um, EMTs, all these things that we just think of of being safe. It's very insidious. And so how do you then go and fight something if it's literally within you? We come down here and look for uh, young kids, vulnerable kids, teenagers running around and that are white, obviously, and uh, try to introduce them to the neo-Nazi movement. A lot of times we give them like literature, uh, white power music. That's the voice of one of the former neo-Nazis you talked to, uh, a man by the name of Jason Downard. He's 28. He lives in the Pacific Northwest. How did he end up being part of this movement? Jason Downard is a young man who basically got involved with the neo-Nazi movement while he was in jail. You know, prison is incredibly racialized. And, um, you know, I think he was saying that he went in there partly for survival and then came out. And what's really interesting is he grew up in, like, a Hispanic neighborhood and was with Hispanic friends and kind of almost joined a Hispanic gang. So then just a few years later, to be joining the neo-Nazi movement to me was really intriguing. Some people blame President Trump for fueling the far right with his language, his tweets, his rallies. What did Jason have to say about that? So much of the language we hear now coming from government, coming from officials— is language that originates from people who are part of this far-right movement and far-right hate. And so it's a wink and a nod to them. Even if you're saying, I'm not racist and I'm not violent, but you're using language like, it's okay to be white 
which is what they want you to say, making things more palatable for mass consumption. The people that I spoke with, you know, people who have been tracking this for decades, literally, would all say and did all say that President Donald Trump is not the reason we're seeing a rise in far-right extremism that was already happened. They also said he seized upon the moment and basically kept it at this heightened state. You know, they said that he is using the language that people within this movement know and recognize. Now that you have somebody like Donald Trump, it's about what he's saying. He, and he's the president of the United States of America. So you get these neo-Nazis like, oh, we got this president. is pretty much giving us the okay to do whatever the hell we want. So how does one stop being a neo-Nazi? How did Jason stop being a neo-Nazi? I think he was tired. I think he was very tired. Um, when the ideology doesn't match up with the reality, I think there's a disconnect and a disassociation there was for Jason. And I also think he wanted to live, he wanted to get out of that life of crime. And so what ends up starting to change his mind... Most of it had to do with my, my nephew that's half black because I do love my family and my family's always been there for me. And so that was part of it. And then also, like, I got tired of going in and out of jail and fighting for this cause that's never going to go anywhere. But also another portion of what is uh, I got tired of being there for all my comrades in, in the joint and stuff like that. And when I got on the streets, they were never there for me on the outside. And so it brings to mind questions for him and his identity and what that means. The former neo-Nazis that we spoke with had one thing in common and that they were looking for a sense of community. What's Jason doing now? Jason has started his own um, organization to try and help people leave the neo-Nazi lifestyle. But what do you do next? How do you, you know, how do you explain those years you were there? What if there are photos? How do you begin the process of beginning to reintegrate into society? I know there's people that's in the movement that wants to get out of the movement, but it's a very violent thing to get out, and some of them, they don't know how to. What I'm doing is not only bringing peace to myself, but if I can tell my story, it can help somebody else that's maybe struggling like I was for a few years. What was it like for you? You're a black woman, grew up in the Deep South, and you met a guy, and he's covered in tattoos. And you can kind of see that he's tried covering them up, but, you know, these are white nationalist tattoos, a lot of them. Was it weird? I mean, was it strange interviewing a guy who, who lived this life? The best part of this series was showing up to interview people in person, and no one knew what I looked like. <laughs> No one knew that they were going to get this short black girl who wears, like, African headscarves and, like, bold colors to come talk about it. And I actually was incredibly nervous and thoughtful about this because my photographer is Chilean. The producer I brought with me is Palestinian. So they were all people of color. There were no white people on this shoot. And I was like, is this a good idea? Like, how are we... So I was just hopeful that I'm like, if you say you're a former Nazi, I'm just going to hope you're a former Nazi right now. Um, and I think, I don't know, maybe it 
was somewhat disarming like to go and to see me and to meet me because he was really open and I wasn't going to be um, soft on him just because of how I look and I think so often in legacy news organizations they would have done the same story and not asked some of these questions right one thing that came up with him and with other people was this call for empathy for people who are perpetrators of this far-right violence and crime. And I think a legacy news organization would have been like, that's the end, we should all love each other. And me being in this body, I was like, nope. Cool story, bro, but what about the victims? (laughs) I hear everything you're saying, but what about the people who are the victims of this stuff? One of the most awkward moments, I should say, was when you asked Jason, you know, you served time in prison for various crimes you've committed. But tell me about some of the crimes you didn't serve time for. Tell me about some of the acts of hate you committed. How did he react to that question? I could see the gears in his brain moving at warp speed. And he said to me... That's a tricky question. No, no, it's not a trick question. Wait, have I committed? Yeah. I don't talk about those things. I mean, I've I've done I've done horrible things that like I gotta live with every day. You know, I'll almost stabbed some people and might have stabbed. Some, I I won't go into those details. You know what I mean? Just because it's it's a hard thing to live with. Let's talk about Charlottesville, two years ago, and. You know, people are still talking about the violence on that day. It was a real turning point for the country when it came to how people viewed the threat of white nationalist violence. You know, the idea that the men who were out there chanting these racist things were these young guys. They were clean cut, wearing golf shirts, chinos, uh, holding tiki torches. You know, looked pretty much like guys you could probably go to college or university with. Do you think that in itself says a lot more about where we are when it comes to who embraces this ideology? How do the images of those people in Charlottesville at all differ from the white people that we see in the black and white and color images of people terrorizing black people during the civil rights movement in the 1960s? Those people were dressed well. Those people had kids. Those people stood on the steps and and yelled about, you know, segregation now, segregation forever, and terrorized black people. There are images in this country of people in their Sunday best and in business suits around people who are being lynched. So this idea that white supremacy only exists for impoverished white people who are also uneducated is something that has never made sense and we know factually is untrue. Did at any point anyone say to you in the process of making this doc or or even in the comments section afterwards, you know, what is this black woman from Louisiana, Nigerian background, doing talking about white nationalism? Did did you come across that at all? 100%. Like the first comments were about how black I am and how I I shouldn't be the one to speak and uh, how neo-Nazis or former neo-Nazis aren't going to tell me anything. Thing because I'm black and I'm like, I think they revealed a whole lot, actually. Did you watch it or did we just comment before we click play? I think that's always going to be a question for me on any story I cover, regardless of if it's race related or not, just because that's 
what social media is, is shouting down women and people of color. And I happen to be both. And I'm going to continue to do the work because it needs to be done. And it needs to be done by people who look like me and who are from where I'm from because um, we're not hearing those narratives and we're not getting those perspectives. Do you feel, given all you've learned, all the people you've met, everything you've read, everything you've seen, that we will see a day where white nationalists, white supremacists just won't be a feature within the U.S. anymore? Do I see a day where people will not be people? No. (laughs) That's what you're asking me. This behavior, this ideology is learned. People thought my generation would be the one to um, get over racism. And then we saw who was in Charlottesville. And those people, too, will grow up one day and have children, and those children will have children. This is a lifelong fight, in part because of how this country was conceived, what it is built upon, slavery, right? And the um, death and slaughter of indigenous people. And so I was just so thankful that people were willing to share their stories with me and willing to be uncomfortable. And I feel like that's one thing we all have to do and get used to. Like we've all got to be uncomfortable. People of color are uncomfortable all the time, every day. Um, And if white people join us in that discomfort, I think we can begin to have these very, very difficult conversations that we need to have and quite possibly come up with solutions. But at the very least, be open, honest, and respectful and you know, talk about some of the factual things that are going on. After the news broke about the New Zealand attacks, we went back to Amayan. I knew when I did that story that it was something that would come up again and again, but I had no idea that one week, not even one week after I finished, it would be incredibly relevant. Injured people are rushed to hospital. They were gunned down during Friday prayers at Al-Nur Mosque in the centre of Christchurch. They are digging graves. Fifty are needed now. A list of victims' names have been shared with family. The Prime Minister says the gunman was motivated by hate and ideology, and that makes him a terrorist. For me, the the case for using the word terrorist is utterly clear. Uh, This was a terrorist act. This was a direct attack, a very direct attack, a deliberate attack on New Zealand's Muslim community. An Al Jazeera team who was covering the story connected Imayan with a survivor of the attack on the Linwood Mosque. My name is Ahmed Wali Khan. How old are you? I'm 27. You're 27 years old. And how long have you lived in New Zealand? I've been living in New Zealand for nearly 13 years. As you know, Afghanistan, the war is going there for a very long time. We were in, in India and refugee camp for nearly two, four years and something, and then we came to uh, we come to we come to New Zealand on around 2000, early 2007. Would you say you're used to seeing war and like combat situations? Well, I was young in Afghanistan. I have seen some uh, war and stuff in Afghanistan when the Taliban was fighting the government, but I have never seen people was dying that close anything. Cause uh, here the situation was like pretty shocking. 
Which mosque were you in that day? I was on Lenwood Mosque. We were on the second raka when the guy came and shot first guy in the driveway. There was a few shots happened and I just saw there there was a dead body lying in the driveway because it was a long driveway to the mosque and the first thing come on my head or might be the police is chasing someone or something like that and then as soon as I went out from the door and have a look in the driveway and he was shooting the other guy there and then he pointed the gun towards me. I ran back to the mosque and tell everyone to get into the ground because someone is shooting everyone and then as soon as we went to the ground he was by the window and then fire from their uh, rifle through the window and shooting everyone in the mosque. Obviously he was wearing a helmet and had a, I couldn't recognize his face or anything like that so I didn't even know what race, what color, anything like that because he was wearing gloves, everything he was, we couldn't see anything. You, you head out toward the driveway because you hear the gunshots and you just think, oh, it's some police activity going by. Then you're there. This gunman comes up, tries to shoot you, but misses, and then you run back into the mosque? Yes, I, uh, after that, yeah, I came to the mosque, and uh, just in the mosque, I was, uh, everyone was dodged down because he was shooting through the window, and then and when I went inside, when he shot, shot through the window, everyone was, like, screaming because there was a female, young, like, a children and everything. So I think the youngest one probably a year, year and a half. And then, yeah, so it was all under five years old children, majority of them. Uh, one guy was uh, uh, shelving his son underneath, uh, trying to protect him. But uh, the son was crying uh, because the guy was dead, but still on top of the son. And uh, son was crying, uh, crying because the son got a shot in the leg as well. And as soon as I come around through there, I just put the dead on the side and grab the son. But the son was keep, still crying and just um, putting his hand on his dad's face. How, do you know how old that boy was? I think probably less than two. Oh, he's, he's a baby, a young kid. How many people did you lose in this attack? I lost uh, lots of my very close friends and as well as one of my uncle. My uncle was passed away in Dinzev, Majid al-Nur. So as you're fighting for your life in one mosque, you hadn't realized in the other mosque that your your uncle had already been shot and killed? Yeah, so he was already been shot and killed, and that's why all my family, everyone was ringing at me and telling me to don't go to the mosque in the Enzev because there's, there's a gunman shooting, and I said, I am already here in Lanewood, and there, he, I think he's here and shooting us here. And what was your uncle's name? His name was Matiullah Safi. Did he have children? Yeah, he was married. He had a, he has a five sons and a daughter, yeah. How much did you know about white nationalism before this attack? Um, it's, I had I had that because um, there's quite a few gangs probably everywhere around the world. So, did you have any worries about them? I I do I do worry about them, but as I was never thinking that they're gonna do do this kind of stuff. So, and especially here, the place that we're living from, there's not too many of them here. So, I, I we've been here for nearly thirteen years. We never had experience or come through any racials or anything with any of those white race or something like that. What do you want the world to know about 
this attack and what happened? Just because of one person, we can't assume that we all blame everyone like, okay, well, they're not like this. So that's why I'm telling everyone it's like people all are here, they all got really emotional and everything and stuff. So the whole city is shocked, not just the Muslim community. You see the people, they don't go to work, they're all shocked, they're crying, they're bringing the flower to the mosque and everything. So I'm just saying that New Zealand is a safe for all the communities. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh my gosh, it's... His uncle had already died unbeknownst to him and his mom calls and says, don't go to the mosque for prayer. There's a gunman and he says, I think he's already here. That is like, I don't know. It's hard not to get emotional when you hear a story like that because it makes it so real. These things aren't abstract for people. These are people's real lives and things like far-right violence and far-right hate do have a very real and very profound impact on people. There's nothing fake about being in a mosque with a shooter coming up, pointing a gun in your face. I think the larger question is, what is our responsibility on dealing with this very real threat? And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nay Alvarez and Amy Walters with Alexandra Locke, Jasmine Bayumi, Priyanka Tilve, Dina Kispe, and Morgan Waters. Seth Samuel was the sound designer. Our social media producer is Natalia Aldana. The show's lead producer is Graylin Bashir. And I'm Imtiaz Tanya. Special thanks to Imai Nibanga, Enrique Waikil, and Phoebe Barguti. And to our team in New Zealand, Kate King and Bill Code, plus Jason Winstanley and Bill Toomey. We'll be back next week. <laughs>